So, uh, again, we're in Matthew chapter 13, and this will be our last week in Matthew 13, uh, because next week we'll be in Matthew 18 as we're going through this, the larger series called Disciple, which is, we've been going through the, the, the five main points of Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew and, and learning what it means to actually follow Jesus, not from Pastor John's words or not from some study somewhere, but from actually from the words of Jesus and how he defined it. And so we've been in kind of a mini-series in that, talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, if you're an overachiever and you want to get ahead, next week we'll be in Matthew 18 and talking about community. So those of you who want to do that, you can. But this morning we're, we're coming to the, the last section on this concept called the kingdom of God and understanding God's kingdom. And, and I know this is, if you've been here like the last four or five weeks, it's like a fire hose. It's like, because we come into this understanding for most of us, when we walk into this building, we say, okay, I'm going to church and everything in our kind of lens of Christianity runs through the church, not realizing there's actually something bigger that encompasses the church called the kingdom of God, which is God's rule and his reign and his work in our lives in the church and his work outside the church. It's bigger than the church. And so we've kind of been trying to digest that the last number of weeks. And so this morning we're kind of coming to the end as Jesus really now begins to define as his kingdom kind of breaks through. If you're here a few weeks ago, we talked about the analogy of a, of a, a light bright. You know, when you were kids, you used to play where there's this box that has light projecting. You put the black construction paper over it and then you put the little pegs where the little things designate. You put the pegs and then you have this this kind of beautiful thing with light shining through it. That's kind of like the kingdom of God in terms of the kingdom of God's coming, but it hasn't come in the fullness of its brightness. The fullness comes when you pull the construction paper off and you get the full light of what's coming from that box. We live with that lens or that filter right now. But what Jesus is talking about, what we'll look at today, is when we eventually get to that point where, you know, the, the filter's pulled off, the black construction paper's gone, and now we get the fullness of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. And so it's important as we look at this that you and I understand some, some things about what Jesus says because what we're going to look at today is when it comes to the kingdom of God, who's in and who's out. Now, we're talk, we'll be talking about heaven and hell and talking about you know, Jesus' return at the end of the age and when that all transpires. But I need you to understand all of us, whether you've been in church for a little amount of time or you've been in church your whole life, we all have a theology of heaven and hell and what happens after you die. We all do. In fact, you don't even need to go to church to have that. Non-Christians can have theology. They can have an understanding of what they think they believe about what happens after life. You can see this when, when for example, over the last couple of weeks, a number of celebrities have died. So Robin Williams died, and then Joan Rivers died. And so, so as you're watching media reports, reading stuff on the internet, or you're listening to people get interviewed, when people talk about them and their death, they reveal their theology about what happens after you die. So like after Robin Williams died, a lot of like, like one of the comedy clubs in Hollywood that he, he used to, to do sets at, he, on the outside it says, make God laugh. You know, rest in peace, Robin Williams. So, so by that statement, what's the theology? That Robin Williams is where? In heaven. Joan Rivers, same thing. People are making statements about, okay, now it's, you made us laugh for all these years, 81 years, now it's time for you to make God laugh. What's the assumption? Joan Rivers is in heaven. Here's the reality of who's in and who's out. In the church, outside the church, the majority of us have a default, and that is, I'm in. Wouldn't you agree? Honestly, that's what it is. Not too many people think, I'm destined for hell. And you don't see up on the, you know, someone says, okay, make hell a happier place because we know you're there. You don't see those kinds of things, do you? We don't. Because everybody makes the assumption, they're in, I'm in, we're all in. That's a dangerous assumption. And that's what we want to talk about today is that Jesus, in his own words, begins to define for you and I, there's this point of separation. 
that he is involved with that you and I need to be aware of now because it will come someday. And that's why he gives us instruction beforehand. So uh, there's two stories, two parables that Jesus uses that we'll look at. One is about uh, wheat and weeds, and another one is about using a net to catch fish. And so let me begin by reading in verse 24, or read to verse 30, and then some more verses that Jesus gives explanation. So it says in verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted up and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where, didn't, where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you will uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time I will tell the harvester, first collect the weeds and then tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then look in verse 36 to verse 43, Jesus gives explanation. It says, Then he left the crowd and he went into his ho- the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his king, of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will f- throw them into the burning furnace or blazing furnace, where they will, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And then jump to verse 47 through verse 50, the last parable that Jesus talks about the kingdom. And he says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was laid down in the lake and caught all kinds of fish. Or let down. And when when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. Then they sat down and they collected good fish in baskets, but threw bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that is a lot to take in. Jesus is saying some pretty profound things, some pretty important things. Again, he's using some analogies that would be very tangible for people 2,000 years ago, talking about a field with wheat and weeds and talking about fishing. Those are things that were very common in the culture. So understand what Jesus is saying. I want to look at really answering some of the questions that Jesus is answering for you and I that many times we have when it comes to heaven, hell, and the kingdom of God coming. So the first thing, look at verse 38 and verse 47, is the question, who is in? Who gets in? Who, who's the, who are the ones that are the ones that will obviously go to be with Jesus and be what we would consider in heaven forever? So verse 38 says, the field is the world. Jesus says, the good seed stands for people of the kingdom. That's the good. Those are the ones that are in. He also says in verse 47, they sat down, they collected the good fish in baskets. So you've got people of the kingdom, the wheat is what he's saying, and you have good fish. Those are the ones that get in. Those are the people who, what we know from Scripture, have submitted their lives to Jesus. They have understood the fact that they are broken and sinners apart from God. They surrendered the fact that Jesus' death on the cross provided for them a way so that they could be reconciled back to God because Jesus took their sin away and paid for it on the cross. They surrender their life to him, and they are the people of the kingdom. They are the wheat. They are the good fish. That's what we can understand from this. We don't have time to go through all those passages, but that's who Jesus is talking about. 
And when it, when it comes down to it, it always comes down to one main decision that we make in our lives, of whether we're in or, not, or out. It always has to do with Jesus. That's it. Jesus makes it really simple. And he also makes it very narrow. Because he says in John 14, 6, he says, no one gets to the Father, no one comes to God except through me. That's it. So when it comes down to it, who's in, who's out, and really talking about the who's inside, it, it comes down to Jesus. It comes down to who is Jesus and have I embraced him in my life? Now, for most of us in this room, we go, well, yeah, I got that one down. I, I get that. But I want to take a little bit of a deeper look and understanding because we can believe that Jesus died on the cross. We can even say something with our mouth. But if we really believe it and we really confess it, it's not just a momentary decision. It's a lifelong commitment that changes everything about who we are. So listen to Jesus in in his words because the kingdom of God, all this stuff is heading towards this big climax when Jesus returns and all of us will be accountable and stand before him as the ultimate judge and this is, this is what Jesus talks about, this encounter that we're going to have. In Luke chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, in Jesus' words, listen to what he says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles? That's a pretty impressive resume, isn't it? Then in verse 23, Jesus says, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now I want you to capture what's going on there. The people that are standing before Jesus at the judgment, and they're saying, Lord, 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 look at what we did. Look at what happened in my life. Look at all the good things that I did. I went to church. I read my Bible. I even tithed. I served with kids that were brats. I did all these great things for you. I gave food to the homeless. I clothed people who didn't have clothes. I went to Haiti. I did all these great things. And Jesus looks at them and says, but I don't know you. That's scary. That we can do all those things and still, still miss the whole concept of who Jesus is. See, because what I just described, all those things, all those doing things, aren't done to show the resume to Jesus at the end of all things. Those things are done because we've come to grips with our brokenness, and we've come under God's grace because Jesus transforms us, and we want to do those things. Not we have to, not we do it for other people to make look at us and think, wow, how spiritual they are. We don't care about what other people think of us. We only care about who Jesus is in our life. It's about knowing Jesus. This is the bottom line. So let, let's take it this way. So how, how do we know that we know Jesus? Because there's a personal connection that goes deeper than any other connection we have in our lives. So let's just back it up for a moment. So some of us think that we know Jesus because we know him like we know a celebrity that we look up to. So we know almost like an acquaintance. So, so if you have somebody like a sports hero or a musician or somebody that you look up to and, and you admire them, and maybe even in your lifetime you've crossed paths with them and you actually met them one time and it was like a highlight for you. And so, so you know who they are and you've met them and you kind of look up to them. You're, you're a fan is what you are. And, and so you think in your mind, I know this person. Like, for example, I might have shared this before, but, but Kenny G, who, those of you under 40, he's probably the best sax player in the world. Those of you over 40 know who he is. You probably have his CDs, right? 
Yeah, the CDs. What are CDs? I know. It's all iTunes, right? Or Spotify or whatever it is, right? But he's an amazing, amazing uh, sax player. Well, because of Kim's brother, and, and he's, been, uh, he's a flight instructor, he, he's worked with a lot of celebrities, and one of them is Kenny, and he's gotten to be good friends with Kenny. So we've gotten to go to a couple of Kenny's concerts. We got to go backstage, and we met him. We got the picture and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's amazing. Now, if I were to bring Kenny in today and bring him up on the stage, and I would shake his hand and say, Hey, Kenny, remember me? What do you think he'd say? Uh, no? I'm like, don't you remember? It was, you know, it was at the Greek theater. You know, it was a great concert. And after, at backstage, you, got, you shook my hand, and we took a picture, and you smiled. And uh, No, there's done that a few thousand times. And bottom line, what would he say? You might know me, but I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know you. I don't even know your name. It's an acquaintance. Well, maybe you say, well, I, that's not me. I, I know Jesus. He's my friend. He's a, he's a friend. In fact, I, I know him well enough that, that we connect, you know, periodically. It's like, like one of my best friends is my brother-in-law, Larry Powers. And even though he's one of my best friends in this, in this life, my best friend is Kim, but he's one of my best friends. I still probably talk to him about every six weeks. I mean, that, because schedules are busy and he lives about, I don't know, an hour or so away and Things just don't, you know, but we, we email each other and we'll text and we'll talk. And he's a good friend of mine and he knows stuff about me and I know stuff about him. And he knows a lot about me and he's helped me in my life. But, but we're just, we're good friends. We'll think, well, that's good enough. I mean, he knows me and I know him. And when Jesus says, I never knew you, that's not even what he's talking about. He's not talking about, oh, I was, I was a friend. You're a friend of mine. Now, God uses the word friendship in scripture, but... What Jesus is talking is what is laced throughout the New Testament about what our role is with relationship to Jesus. The church, the people of God, are called the bride of Christ. When you and I make a commitment to give our lives to Jesus, it is like a marriage connection. It is the deep, profound, intimate level that married couples experience, but on a spiritual level with Jesus. That's, the, that's what Jesus is talking about. Not only did you know about me and, and know information, but you know me to the point where you allow me to invade every aspect of who you are. You allow me to be the king over your life. You allow me into every part of who you are. Therefore, when I look at you, I don't care about your resume I know that you know me and you've surrendered fully to me. And because of that, I look at you and I say, I know you. And instead of saying, away into punishment or away that use those that are wicked, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So I don't know where you're at today with Jesus, but that's what it comes down to. See, you and I do good deeds that are true and righteous and real when we've been transformed. You, a religious person and someone who knows Jesus on the outside can look identical. But how do you know the difference? Because someday when we all stand before Jesus, we will see what was real and what was fake. Who knew Jesus and who was only religious? Then it leads to the second thing. I know this is hard to, to swallow, but this is, again, we always have to go back to the words of Jesus. What is Jesus telling us about his kingdom? Second thing is the question, who is out? So this is verse 38 and then actually verse 48. Um, it says, Jesus says, the weeds are the people of the evil one. And it says, talking about the fish, they sat down, they collected good fish and baskets, and they threw away the bad fish or the bad ones. So we have wheat and, as the good, but weeds is the bad. And Jesus is using this, again, this agricultural analogy. He's saying there's this separation. So, so the question is, who is out? It's those who have chosen in their life to not surrender to Jesus, but to surrender really to themselves. And in surrendering to themselves, they open themselves up to be influenced by the devil who's planted seed in their life. Now, 
it really comes down again to one main issue. Christianity is not confusing. It's just hard. And here's the bottom line. God gives all of us a choice in our lifetime. Here's the choice. You can choose to be your own God or you can allow me to be the God of your life. That's the choice every human being has in all of human history. That's what it comes down to. Those who choose to say, you know what? I think I'll be my own God. Then he says, okay. Those who say, I'll choose to let you be God and I'll do what you will call me to. That's why Jesus said, you say, Lord, Lord, but what was the key thing? Those who do the will of my Father, which means someone who surrendered their life to God. So that's the question. And how do we know that's the question? Because it's the first question that had to be answered back in Genesis chapter 3. It's the question for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history. Every human being has had to answer. Eve had to answer it. In the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes to her to tempt her about the one tree that God said, listen, leave it alone. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can have anything else. Just leave that one alone. And what does the devil do? Listen to the, this in verse 4 and 5 of Genesis 3. This is the, the enemy speaking. He says, you will not certainly die. He's saying, if you eat of that, you're not going to die. Not like God. God said, you're not going to die. He says, the serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. There it is. There there are only two things that the human beings can worship. God and self. That's it. Even if you worship a celebrity, you're really worshiping yourself because what you're worshiping in them is what you want to become. It's still about you. That's the choice. And each one of us has the choice. Is God going to be God? Or am I going to be my own God? That's why this thing called the kingdom is so important because Jesus is Lord. He's the king. And when you're in the king's kingdom, you follow the king's lead and you're obedient to the king. That's the whole point. If you say, you know what? I want to be in your kingdom at the end, but I'm going to live my kingdom right now. It doesn't work that way. And so you and I have to come to grips with the bottom line for us is who's going to be in control? Is God going to be in control of my life? Or am I going to call the shots? See, Adam and Eve, what happened? They, Eve made the decision, and then don't, let's not blame Eve because Adam was just as culpable. He made the decision too. He said, you know what? I'll choose to be my God. Thank you. I want to be like God, therefore I'll eat the fruit. And we all make that decision. And that's where God says, listen, then now you have chosen to build your own kingdom. And because of that, you can't be a part of mine. So you're out. But then there's the third question that you and I, especially those who would call themselves Christians, those that are, would be within the church, has to come to grips with. And that is in verse 41 and verse 49. Who determines who is in and who is out and when does it happen? So in those verses it says, The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out his, of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And then verse 49, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. So some important questions here. Who does the separating? Who does the judging? It's not a trick question. Jesus. Jesus says the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus is. Jesus is the one who does the judging. Why is that so important? Because we love to judge, don't we? We do. And especially when it comes to who's in and who's out. Somewhere down the line, we got the idea that we're, we're the ones that decide by someone's behavior, their lifestyle, oh, you're out and I'm in. We do. Remember, our, what's our default? I'm in. That's our default. 
And for other people, we, we determine whether they're in and out. This says the Son of Man at the end of the age is going to come. And that's the wind, by the way. The wind is the end of the age. The end of the age hasn't come back. The end of the age is when Jesus returns. That's the end of the age. When Jesus comes back, Jesus will be the judge. Now, either for some, some of us, it's a big bummer because we're like, shoot, I wanted to be the judge right now. And for others of us, like me, I'm greatly relieved. I don't have to be the judge of someone else's eternity. Jesus is a good enough judge of their eternity. But one thing I do know, I want to make sure that they know Jesus. They know their need for Jesus. They know that they need his sacrifice over their life to cover their sin so that when he looks at them someday, he knows them intimately and personally so that he says, come and enjoy my father. Come and enjoy what you've earned. Come and enjoy what a good servant earns at the end of the age. That's what we should be expecting. That's what we should want. That's what we should want for other people. But we have a challenge because so many times we like to say who's in and who's out. And where does that come from? It comes from pride. It comes from pride. I mean, read through the Gospels. There's a couple different times where the disciples kind of look and say, hey, look at what they're doing over there. They're not one of us, are they? And Jesus says, oh, you guys are missing it. And I think sometimes we, we, like, we, like to, we like to kind of close ranks and say, okay, yeah, we're in, but boy, you're out. And we'll define the behavior that gets them out, which is so funny in the church. We'll have all kinds of blatant sin in our life, but there's one or two sins that really offend us, and we'll say, well, that person's out, but I'm in. Really? You can't even be the judge of your own soul. Jesus is the judge. See, and that's the reason that we get that way is we sometimes, we turn the church into a club. A club that has exclusive rules, and really, the, the reason that you have a club is because you want to be able to establish who's in and who's out. That's why. If you're a member of the club, you're in. If you're not a member, you're out. That's one of the reasons, by the way, for me personally, conviction, the way we're church, we don't officially have membership. Because your membership is not about membership at New Hope. Your membership's about membership in the kingdom, and that has to do with Jesus. That's the most important thing. The greatest tragedy for me as a pastor is to get you to become a member of New Hope and never know Jesus. What would be the point? It has to be about him. When I was a kid in our neighborhood, we decided to start a club because we wanted to be cool. And the whole reason you start a club is to see who can be president. When you're a kid, that's like power. You wanted to be in charge. And I remember we started the club, and everybody had to like put $2 in as dues. And there's like, I don't know how many of us, like six or eight of us. And so we had a little treasury box with all of our money. And we wanted to make money, so <laughs> I don't know whose idea it was, but there's a home improvement store like around the corner from our house. And it was Christmas time, and, and they had thrown all the trees that were kind of rejects, Christmas trees that no one would buy. So we went into the dumpster, and we pulled them out, and we put them on someone's front lawn, and we sold them. And we made, I don't know, like 20 or 30 bucks. So we had like this, this box of money. And then it got really weird because everybody wanted to be president because they wanted to control the money. And we had a treasurer, and we had all this stuff. And I remember one afternoon when we got all that money, we, were all, we had like our, our club meeting. And we're all sitting down, and we're discussing what we're going to do as a club. And suddenly everyone started arguing with each other. The president made a decision that somebody didn't like. So someone said, well, I don't want you to be president anymore. I want to be president. And then somebody else got offended and said, well, you're not in the club anymore. I'm going to start a new club over here. And I'm not kidding. In two hours, we had three clubs instead of one. Does that sound something similar to like this thing called the church? We do. Why? Because we always want to establish who's in, who's out. Let Jesus take care of that. That's why he says in this parable, they come to him and say, hey, Master, do you want us to pull out the weeds now? And he says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. He said, wait till harvest. Because when harvest comes, the wheat will show its fruit. It will show what it produces, the kernels. The weeds will produce nothing. And you'll be able to look, obviously, and say, yeah, you know what? That's weed, and that's wheat. 
And that's what for you and I, let Jesus at the end of the age be the judge. The most important thing is you personally knowing Jesus and other people knowing Jesus and letting Jesus be the judge. And there's another question that you and I have to come to grips with. And that is, what is the future of those that are in or the ends? So Jesus explains what that looks like. Verse 30 says, let both grow together until harvest. At the end, I will tell the harvester, first collect the weeds And then you're going to bundle those up and burn them and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then going on in the story about fish, he says, Then he sat down and collected good fish in a basket. And then verse 43, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So what's Jesus talking about? So it's the separation. So those who are in, the people of the kingdom, the wheat, the good fish, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom. Jesus is giving a great image of the future place of those who have surrendered him that he knows, that have come to him and surrendered their lives to follow him, that they will be in a place where they will be a part of God's kingdom and there will be such a radiance of God's presence. And I'll read this in a moment. There won't be any need for the moon or the sun because God's glory is there. Now, there's, there's stuff in the book of Revelation that is so overwhelming to, I think, our human capacity that sometimes we fully can't grasp it. But if you and I, just for a moment, will pause to think about what it will look like someday when Jesus returns and there's the judgment and ultimately, because if you know Jesus, then you get to go into the new heaven and the new earth and you get to experience the direct presence of God. John, in Revelation, through this vision that Jesus gives him, gives us a glimpse. It's like one of those pegs in the light bright and says, look, look, this is what it's going to look like. In fact, I'm going to ask you if you do something, just close your eyes for a moment. I want to read from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 22, 27. The reason I want you to close your eyes is I don't want you to be distracted. I just want you to see the, the, the vision that God gave, that Jesus gave to John, and what it's going to be like, what it's going to look like for those who will be in God's kingdom. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. That's his kingdom coming in fullness. And they will dwell with him, or he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. Has passed away. And then verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You can open your eyes. Just let that settle in. Can you imagine a place that there's no death, mourning, crying, pain, sin, deceitfulness, and that God's presence is so powerful and we are in God's direct presence that you don't even need the sun anymore. And there is no nighttime. There is no darkness because God is there. Can you just imagine? That's what you and I get to look forward to. 
which is, remember, if you've been here any amount of time, this is what human history is unfolding for. God's desire, God's heart desire for humanity is that they would be reconciled back to him through Jesus. That's why we're alive. Because like Adam and Eve, all of us make the decision to be our own God, and God is patient and loving and so so desires to be with us that through Jesus' death on the cross has made a way for us, even though we've sinned, to be reunited and reconciled back to him so that we can experience what I just read. That's what this is about. That's, that so many people say, oh, God is not loving. God is judgmental and wrathful. And God is both. He's loving and he's wrathful because he's about justice. But he loves us so much that he wants us to be with him, so much so that Jesus willingly died so that we could be with him. That's why the greatest tragedy is to ever reject Jesus, because you're rejecting a gift that will impact you forever. And then another harder one to answer and process through is, what is the future of those that are out? So Jesus gives insight to that. Verse 41, he says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will weed out from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 49, this is how the end of the, the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Doesn't sound like a very pleasant place, does it? So what Jesus is describing is giving some powerful imagery. This concept of a blazing furnace is a reference to, most likely you'll understand in the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, that there will be the ultimate destination of those who've rejected Jesus is a place called the lake of fire. It's where, it's where the Antichrist and, and, and the Satan himself will be cast into, and it's the final resting place for eternity for those who've chosen to reject Jesus. And Jesus describes it, and he does it many times throughout the Gospels, as this place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is bitter regret. That, that once this all transpires and we stand before Jesus someday and the judgment comes and if he looks at you and says, I never knew you, and then you end up going into the lake of fire, then you and I end up in this place forever where we can look back over our lifetime and gnash our teeth and weep over the fact that we know that we rejected God. And experience that forever. And that's, to me, that, that's the, this is what's hard. Some people have tried to rationalize it away, and there's different theological persuasions, but throughout the Gospels, Jesus seems to indicate that hell and the lake of fire is a place that goes on forever. That's hard to swallow, but we have to trust God. Because you and I have to understand something about the way God works. Because I can't tell you how many non-Christian people who I've experienced and talked to, and their biggest objection is that God is not loving. How can a loving God send people to hell forever? How can he do that? If he really loved people, he would save all of them. But see, you don't have to understand, that's not loving. If you have a child and you never give that child a choice of whether they want to be in relationship with you or not, if they want to love you or not, and you force them as a robot to only love you, is that loving? That's compliance. But true love is something that has to be chosen. And so if you and I understand God really is loving, this is what God does in the lifetime of every human being. If you and I in our lifetime continually say, I, by, not necessarily by our words, but by our actions, I choose to be my own God. I choose to be separate from you 
because I can do it better myself, and I don't think you know what you're doing. I'll live my life the way I want to live my life. I'll be my God. You be the God for everybody else, but I'm going to choose it my way. Then at the final judgment, God is only just, because you know what he's doing? He's now giving that person what they have asked for and sought for their entire human life, eternity apart from him. That's what he's giving them. Oh, that's not fair. Yes, it is. If you continue to reject him and say, you know what? Cross, not good enough for me. Dying for my sin, I'm not as bad as other people, so I don't really need that. I want to live my life. I don't have to really care about anybody. I'm going to do what I want to do. And God says, that's fine. You've rejected me. Now I will reject you forever. And we look at that and we understand that. Why? Because that should motivate us on two fronts. It should motivate us ourselves to ask the question every day, is Jesus the Lord of my life or am I trying to run the show? Am I living out the life that Jesus wants me to live, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard, or am I customizing him in such a way that I get enough of religion to satisfy my conscience? But honestly, if I really, really was honest, I'm living out what I want to live out. See, that's the danger within the church, is that you and I get enough of religion, enough of church, and enough of Jesus just to modify our lives. Enough! So we think we're okay. Jesus says it's all or nothing. That should motivate us. The second thing, it should motivate us because you and I live in a world of people. If, if they don't know Jesus, this is their destiny. This is where they're going. And it's not that we share the gospel so people can get fire insurance. The, the positive side is far greater than the negative side. People choose Jesus not running from hell. They choose Jesus and they don't have to go to hell. But you and I have to understand that as someone who knows Jesus, and I trust that someday when I stand before him, he will look at me. Yeah, my default is in, and I hope it is, but every day I pray that God will help me to make sure that I'm living as he is Lord. But the greatest tragedy will be for you and I. I know for me as a pastor, this scares me to death. That as we come to judgment and I stand before Jesus and I'm judged, and then I don't know how it's going to look. I can only speculate. I don't know if there's a long line and we come one at a time. We're like, yeesh. We're thinking they're in, they're out, and we're like, we're surprised. But for somebody to stand before Jesus someday and look down the line and see me. And Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. And they look at me and they say, you are my pastor. Why didn't you tell me? I sat in your church for years. I, I served. I, I worked with kids. I went to the Dream Center. I did all that stuff. Why didn't you tell me it was about really knowing Jesus? That'll be so difficult. I don't, I don't want to be there. And that's why, you know, for some people, when we go to Jesus, like, man, Pastor John, you're a little harsh. You're a little, it's a little bit too confronting. Can't you just soft pedal a little bit? Jesus didn't, because what's at stake? And we're, once you know Jesus, we're all accountable for this. But that should motivate us. That's why people move to another part of the world to go reach people who don't know Jesus. That's why people go do dangerous and crazy stuff because they're so motivated at the fact they want them to know Jesus so they can be in God's kingdom and they don't want them to go to hell so it consumes their life so their life is no longer about them. It's not about their house or their car or their career or what they want to even do with their family. It's about what Jesus is doing through them so they sell out to him. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the book of Acts. Jesus took, Jesus took a handful of guys and they lit the world on fire. 2,000 years ago. Why? Because they believed this stuff. They anticipated this stuff. And then the final thing, and then we'll do a few few things to wrap up service, and that is this final question. What does your future look like? 
Is it what we just read in Revelation 21? Or is it what Jesus talked about in Matthew 13? Is it weeping and gnashing of teeth? Is it the blazing furnace? Again, remember what our default is. Ah, I'm in. I'm in. I go to church. Mom and dad were Christians. I've been growing up in a Christian household. I'm in. I have a Bible with my name, you know, on it. I mean, I'm in. I got all the stuff down. I got the t-shirts. I go to the Bibles. You know, all that stuff. Jesus said, I don't care. Do you know me? Do I know you? And that's the question today for each one of us is, I don't know where any of us are specifically in our journey. Because you may be here and you've never had that moment in time where you said, I give up and surrender my life. I realize I need Jesus' death on the cross to cover my brokenness and failure because it's ugly. And I need to surrender my life to him. Maybe you've never done that. Today you can do that. For others, you're here and maybe you've been in the church and you've been convinced you're in, but now you're taking a step back and saying, now wait a second. Maybe the Christianity that I understood is not the Christianity that Jesus is talking about here. And I need to take a step back and review my own life. Now, this message is not to make us feel a sense of insecurity constantly, but it's to take a step back. Jesus is talking about a group of people that will stand him before him someday who are absolutely convinced they were going to be in the kingdom. And they weren't. And that's why you and I have to say, okay, is my life what God wants it to be? Am I honestly living out God's will, the will of the Father, or am I living out my will? No one else can answer that for you. You can answer it because in the integrity of your heart, you have to answer that question. You know whether this is what God wants for you or if it's what you want for yourself. Because ultimately, God's, ultimately living for God is better. It is. Surrendering to him is better. Not only in the end, but now it is. Read through the Gospels and read through the book of Acts and see a group of people who sold out for Jesus. Many of them lost their lives. But then read the book of Philippians, written by a guy who got tortured and beat up by more, more than anybody else that you'll know in the New Testament. Yet he writes about joy. Because he understood something that sometimes we miss. So why don't we go ahead and just bow our heads. And I want you to do that again to focus. It's not about you and Pastor John or you in this service. It's about what Jesus wants you to do. It's you and Jesus right now. So do what you need to do to not be distracted. Because there's a, there's a moment of response, I believe, that God wants for each one of us today. I described a little bit earlier about maybe you've never come to that place where you've said, I fully want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to stop calling the shots. I want to stop defining what my life's supposed to be about. I want to stop defining what is right and what is wrong. I want Jesus to define that for me. And you know because of your own journey and you've tried to be God and you know that it hasn't worked and you've fallen short, you've sinned because you know you haven't lived lived the life that God wants you to live, then today you can surrender your life. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, he takes every point of sin in your life and he takes it and he puts it onto himself. That's what he did 2,000 years ago. And he paid the penalty. He took on the wrath of God, was poured out on him so that it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. So that you and I, we are covered. So when we stand before him someday, the reason he would know us is because we've embraced him and we've come under the, the, the sacrifice he made. We've come under his shed blood for us. So we're covered and we're in the kingdom. But the way that that happens is you have to make a commitment to surrender and say, Jesus, you are Lord. I am not. And I give my life 
my past, my present, my future, my agenda, my career, my relationships, everything, I give them to you. And I'll allow you to be the one that defines life for me. If that's you, then right now you can begin to just pray. Even if you've never even prayed before, prayer is talking to God. You begin to say, Jesus, I need to surrender my life. And you can just begin to confess the things that you know that are off off course from what he purposed for you and say, I'm going to choose to live a different life, but I, I come under your forgiveness that you provided on the cross and I turn away from the life that I used to live to the life you want me to live. Now, others, you may be here and you've maybe known the Lord for quite a long time, at least in your own mind, but now you're, there's, a, there's a good unrest in you. There should be in each of us when we read these passages. Maybe you need to take a step back today and you need to ask the question, Jesus, do you really know me? Jesus, do I really know you? And for some of us, that means, and this is the hard thing, I know I go through these seasons where I have to do this. I have to de-customize my faith because I customize Jesus to make him fit into my life as opposed to me and his. So today, you might need to take a step back and say, Jesus, who are you? What is my life really supposed to look like when I follow you? Because I want to experience your kingdom. I want to be in your kingdom. And I want to be with you forever. The reason that you created me. So Lord Jesus help me. Help my life to be reflected of not someone who's religious and does good deeds. But someone who's been transformed and desires good deeds. So Lord Jesus you know our heart. And you love us. And there's not a reason that any of us have to experience that blazing furnace. Your desire for each one of us is to experience that beautiful place where we don't need the sun anymore because your glory is there. Where there is no death, there is no pain or mourning or loss or sin or suffering or sin. None of that. It's all gone. That's what your desire is because we are with you in your presence. So I pray that today, Lord, that we would allow by your spirit, Jesus, you to speak to our hearts so that our lives are truly changed. We really know the King And therefore, we find ourselves experiencing the kingdom and therefore someday in the kingdom forever. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.